0: It's time, once again, for another thrilling episode of Mark Out Radio. Of Markout Radio. For the next hour, sit back, pull the stick out of your ass, and enjoy. Be warned, though. Smarks and internet know-it-alls will be offended, annoyed, and generally pissed off at what's about to happen to your ear holes. You've been warned. Now, Mark Out Radio. Thank you. Thank you. No, oh, no flashes. No, no. Stop with the fucking flashes. Goddamn paparazzi. Knock it off. Of hey. It's only been a year. Fuck off. There you go. That's better. All right. Welcome back to Markout Radio. Um, Dark Fox, Dave, whatever the fuck you're going to call me this week. Asshole. Smark. <laughs> whatever. Back in the air after oh, about a year or so. Uh, it's interesting that what got me interested in doing this again was uh, going back on the network and watching some uh, some WCW stuff. Because growing up, that was more accessible to me than the WWE was. Because the WWE was on a lot of c- cable packages that we just didn't even have. We just didn't have all the channels that had all the Shotgun Saturday Night and all that other bullshit on there. But we did have TBS. Back in 87, TBS was added to our cable package. So right away I had wrestling and you know, I had watched on television and everything like that. But I was kind of, if I'm honest, I was, I was actually kind of bored. Because back in 87, like when you watched televised WWF shows or WWE nowadays for you fucking millennial types back in 87 you didn't have named wrestlers versus named wrestlers on TV you had a named wrestler versus what was once upon a time called a jobber and now a lot of people call uh, named wrestlers jobbers which is why they get so angry at you my smirky friends but anyways uh, back in the 80s, what would happen is you would have a named wrestler, you know, your Buddhist and Beefcakes, or your Hulk Hogan's, or your Randy Savage's, or your Duke the Dumpster Drossy come out. I can't believe that Duke the Dumpster Drossy was not a fucking jobber. Well, did he win anything ever? Ever? Did he win anything? It didn't matter. Even the fucking brawler. Even the Brooklyn brawler was a named wrestler, not a quote-unquote jobber, but Harvey Wilberman Absolutely a jobber. Got squashed all the time, but whatever. Lots of jobbers back in the 80s, especially in the WWF. Now, WCW came from NWA sort of infancy. uh, And back in the 80s, they sort of set out on their own um, with uh, Ric Flair and Sting sort of battling for the title. But in 87, they were still very much the NWA with WCW marketing all over them. So, You would have WCW Saturday Night, and you would have Clash of the Champions, which was a pay-per-view that was free on TBS television, which was pretty fucking cool, especially when you're eight years old, and you think that wrestling's still real, and you're kind of like, holy shit, there's a fucking pay-per-view on normal television, because God knows we weren't getting any fucking pay-per-views at our house, Um, but anyways... What ended up happening was I started getting into more w c w stuff um it was more up my alley I enjoyed the the i guess i enjoyed the southern style of wrestling more at the time. i don't know why I did because for those of you taking notes at home, I live in fucking Canada, so maybe that maybe that throwback style maybe that southern style um that even stampede did at the time was something that was just more into and and uh, re- responded to better than jobber matches at house shows and shit like that. So anyways, uh, th- that's sort of my background as far as WCW stuff goes. Of course, I will unabashedly admit that I was a colossal fucking Sting Mark in the same way that I was a colossal fucking Warrior Mark. Don't judge me. You liked Hogan. Fuck off. But anyways... Uh, it was, uh, you know, of course, if you know your wrestling history, that uh, Warrior and Sting were a tag team at one point, the Blade Runners. But at the time, Flair was the man. And I think a lot of us would probably argue that he continues to be. But the idea was that Sting was coming in in the same way that Warrior came to the WWF and that Rick Flair had put over Sting and he had, quote-unquote, promised Sting the title backstage more than a few times and that he would, you know, make him the champion. Of course... You wouldn't actually expect Hogan to do that. He had to be kicked dragging and screaming into that uh by Vince, but whatever. I'm not gonna compare Ric Flair to Hulk Hogan. I was not really much of a comparison. But, anyways, the idea here behind this revamping of the show is to go back to infamy, to when WCW first started the quote unquote Monday Night Wars. Now, let's Let's just calm the fuck down first of all and pump them brakes. Because calling it a war out of the gate is really being generous because it was absolutely not a fucking war. It was two different type of wrestling companies. And yeah, all right. So they both had Monday night shows. And yeah, they were both one hour and one of them was live, which we're now reviewing, and one of them was all pre-taped. But don't worry, after a while, they both became live, and uh, we've got some stats to back up my bullshit opinions, but uh, we've got some—we've got the ratings, we've got all kinds of stuff. So I don't think it's a little-known fact, but just in case you don't know the history here, back in uh, 4th of September 1995 is the very first episode of Nitro. Oddly enough, there was no Raw that week. So, really, the quote-unquote firing of the initial salvo was on a week that WCW knew that WWE was off the air, which isn't exactly a pussy move. It's kind of a smart move, I suppose. You could make the argument that it's a smart move, right? We could make that argument, can't we? I mean, it is Eric Bischoff. You're going to hear a little bit of Eric Bischoff bashing because I'm not a huge fan of... Eric Bischoff style, you will absolutely hear some Vince Russo bashing because I absolutely hate that fucking style. Uh, But you know, you'll hear you know what you come to expect from the show. So if you go back into the archives, I'll be adding slowly over time here. um, You'll hear an awful lot of Hogan bashing, probably, and probably some beefer bashing, and it'll get a little uncomfortable, but that's okay. So the very first show came out of the Mall of America in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, Nitro got a 2.5 rating that week. There was a live attendance of 2000 people all watching the show for free, which is again, it was in the mall of America. So it is what it is. But these are the stats that I've got that I will continue to update as we go through the rest of these episodes. I've, for the most part, I've collected almost all of them. There's a few that were big question marks that I had to like try to source from other places, but there are some that are legitimately missing in action. Um, there of course in the rankings of, uh, you know, your actual cable TV ratings, you'll see some back and forth going on here, which is to be expected at the time. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I found it, well, the nerd in me found it very interesting to go back and forth and see what the stats were like for actual views and things like that. And then of course, this being a smarky type show at the end of it, I will weigh in with my totally uneducated opinion on what I thought the show was out of a score of five. So there you go. I'm going to sort of try to grade the matches out of a score of five as well. My grading system has always (laughs) elicited a little bit of controversy. So strap in, Buttercup, because it's going to get bumpy. My match ratings are, number one, based on how well the actual athletes are performing. All right? I I don't think that that's a stretch. I, I think that's what most of the rating systems go on. The other one is, how is this match Going to be furthering or concluding an ongoing program or feud, all right, so once we take a look at these two things and then if there's like some cool high spots that don't have to be painfully set up in uh, X division style, then we'll talk about that kind of stuff too. but um obviously, the first thing I want to get into is going to be there are always going to be dark matches, so don't cry. It'll happen. When I have information on that there's a dark match, I will include it as we discuss this stuff through. And this week's dark, dark match was the American Males. This is quite possibly the... I mean, Gold Dust theme is less gay than this theme is. Uh, this is really, really quite horrible. I mean, <clears throat> I think it was supposed to be edgy and very 90s. The American Males, of course, were Marcus, Marcus Alexander Bagwell, <laughs> who is now a gigolo, and Scotty Riggs, and well, I think he trains wrestlers. I haven't actually looked it up in a while. Because poor Scotty Riggs, he, uh, well, he kind of got the tag team treatment, didn't he? So the dark match is the American Males going over on Bunkhouse, Buck, and Dirty Dick Slater with Colonel Robert Parker. I want to say when I know things like this are going on, and I'm looking at the historical listing of the matches, if I know that there is a terrible nickname of a wrestler, I will include it in there. And Dick Slater was just listed as Dick Slater in the stats that I found for this match. But fuck you. His name was Dirty Dick Slater. It was a tongue-in-cheek thing. It was horrible. Um, Dirty Dick Slater was like an old school southern wrestler uh, he very much looked like a guy that used to get into bar fights a lot and Bunkhouse Buck I'm I guess maybe like you know back in like the late 90s when the smoking guns were a thing like Billy Gunn and was it Bart Gunn? Yeah it was Bart, he was the one that went out to become a quote unquote boxer right? Yeah anyways this I swear to Christ, this is the guy that they look to to figure out how they're going to dress. This was an awful lot of suspenders in this match because the American male's gimmicks for their outfits where they had like these black they're not hammer pants, but they're like the loose fitting slacks that come together at the ankles and they had like these big suspenders. And Marcus Alexander Bagwell had black ones and Scotty Riggs had white ones. And Marcus Alexander Bagwell had black cowboy boots literal cowboy boots by the way not wrestling cowboy boots like dustin runnels used to wear but like legit or dusty Rhodes, whatever but like legit fucking cowboy boots and 90s cowboy boots because the 90s cowboy boots had that little bracelet that went over the top of the toe like you know what i mean or the ankle and the, and the and the shin bone meat yeah that's yeah okay I'm, I'm really, I really am that old. Anyways, and then Scotty Riggs had white boots, so that was the thing—the black slacks, but like white suspenders and and white boots, or black boots and black suspenders. But anyways, uh, I think at the time, the the idea was to put Bagwell in uh, like a tag team with another guy that was, you know, had been around for a while in an effort to build him up so that he would be, you know, their next big top baby phase, right? And he's he's a good-looking guy, he has a good physique, so of course, like, that kind of thing makes sense. For the life of me, the bunkhouse Buck Dirty Dick Slater thing with Colonel Robert Parker was all about just the heeliest heel heel team that you could possibly have. So, I mean, they're putting them on the dark match is good because, you know, you're having it on a mall full of teenagers, some teenage girls perhaps... And so you're putting your pretty boys out there as a dark match. That's just smart fucking marketing. All right? But then you end up, you go into the actual very first show. And, of course, Eric Bischoff in true Carney style. A lot of people will shit on Eric Bischoff for a lot of things, but I will tell you this. He is absolutely 100% a fucking Carney at heart. All right? So just... Bear that in mind as we keep going through this. So Eric Bischoff, Bobby Heenan, and Steve Mongo McMichael, a new a new acquisition, a former Chicago Bear. Um, I don't know really what to say about Mongo. I uh, he wasn't bad. I, he's, um, I mean, he was married to Deborah. Does that count? the The chick that ended up married to us does that Does that count? I don't know if that counts. I guess it doesn't really matter. He wasn't terrible as far as a, uh, I don't even know what the fuck you want to call him. Because usually what ends up happening on an announce team is you've got your straight man. So in this case, Eric Bischoff, which is a stretch, but it is what it is. You've got Bobby Heenan, of course, being the heel commentator. And I love Bobby Heenan's commentating style. I mimicked it when I did that for a little while. I love the cowardly heel announcer. Like it's 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 a hilarious gimmick. Because it should. That's what it... Unless you're a legit badass, like, yeah, you know... What the fuck was it? Jesse Ventura? There we go. Then, yeah, be a, be a fucking cowardly heel announcer. That's funnier that way. But anyways. Um, and then, of course, you know, you got Mongo. And he comes out there with his fucking dog. Which he even keeps calling a tarantula. Which is objectively funny. But um, you end up... Your very first match of your very first Nitro is actually kind of a fucking good match. You had... Jushin Thunder Lager, Lager, who just had his retirement match today, well, today in Japan. I haven't had a chance to watch yet, but fucking I will, because I was a huge mark of Jushin Thunder Lager, Uh, amazing wrestler. I was also a huge mark of Flying Brian Pillman, who for this match was just listed as Brian Pillman. Probably because he was just coming back after a pretty severe knee injury and ACL rebuild. So, was going to be doing a whole lot of flying around. And he had been back for about four weeks. So, he had ACL damage and he had a broken leg that he had to have repaired. Surgically repaired. Now, this is the chunkiest we're ever going to see Pillman. So, relax. Because Pillman is... a Pillman's got a fantastic physique. So... He bounces back real fucking quick. By the time we're into episode five or six, he's already back to looking like he he usually looks. But Bischoff, to his credit, launches off into explanation on Pillman's back. He's only four weeks back from a broken leg, so he's not going to do a whole lot of flippy-dippy nonsense. But there was a couple of little weird botchy things. For example, Pillman launches Liger into the corner. Liger leaps up to the top rope to do a moonsault, but Pillman stayed too far back to catch him properly. And even out loud, the mics on the on the cameras at ringside could catch Pillman saying, "What you doing?" This is like an old old school like Thunder Lager move, and like Jushin's been doing this since the late '80s, so it's not like this is something new. And nowadays, you just see everyone everyone doing this. You know, you do that little step up to the top rope and you do a moonsault. But at this time, there wasn't a whole lot of that flying flippity-dippity stuff, right? So this was kind of interesting. But anyways, that was technically a botch, I guess. Yeah, I guess you could call that one a botch because Brian stayed a little too far back. But again, the guy just came back from a broken leg. I'm not going to really crucify him so bad based on that. I do got to say that there's one cameraman that's going to keep coming back and we're just going to keep calling on the ballsy cameraman because if any of you know who this guy actually was, like legitimately, don't fucking troll it. Shoot me off a a tweet there at Marco Radio uh, on Twitter or whatever. Um, Let me know what this guy's fucking name is because I'd like to give this guy props because he's got some fucking balls. He stays on the ring apron. He stands up there, like in a corner or along the ropes, and he gets some of the best fucking shots of action. You can't get camera angles this close without one of the ones on the boom arm or something these days. So I I absolutely love the balls in this guy. There's a couple times when someone got whipped into the corner, like right in front of him, and he was able to avoid making contact with the camera. And another camera or the hard camera would pick him up, holding on to the rope, right by where the turnbuckle is and leaning way the fuck back so that the guy doesn't get hit the camera. That guy's got some fucking balls on him. I should give this match an extra half a point just for him, but he wasn't wrestling, so I'm not going to do that. Bischoff goes ahead and points out that there's a head scissors botch. Thank you, Bischoff, for blowing up your own product. That's really awesome. There was a really good spot here, though. There was a double axe handle from Lager that was countered by a drop kick from Pillman off the top rope. And, you know, nowadays you see that an awful lot. But again, put on your mid-90s hat. That didn't happen very often. And when it did, it was often botched. Uh, it was Topper Hoonokunrata, or a Frankenstein,er depending on who the fuck you're asking and when you're asking them, from Lager to Pillman, which was another nice high spot and super rare for the mid-90s. So overall, though, because there were so many botches, I don't know if Pillman and, and Lager had worked together before, but it looked as though they really hadn't. The timing was a little bit off. There was a couple big botches. And then, of course, Bischoff points out one of the botches, which was super awesome. But, um, you know, it had enough high spots. And I gave it two out of five. I thought it was a good match. You know, listen, I know two out of five is lower than 50%. But once you start seeing what happens with some of these fucking matches, you're going to understand why these uh, scores are the way they are. Next up, Sting goes over on Flair. Uh, Lex Luger comes out before the match starts and just sort of stands in the entrance after after Sting and Flair make their entrance. Um, it was weird, but it wasn't bad. It was um, one of the first instances, not the, obviously, first instance, but it was one of the first instances of Bischoff legitimately stealing talent from Vince. And it's, stealing is a really, really generous term here. What essentially happened? I got some notes on it here. I got to double check here. So... Luger really wanted to leave the WWE because he wasn't getting the push that he thought he was going to get. At the time, he was still doing that narcissist angle with the big fucking full-length mirror to come down to the ring with Sherry and stuff. But he was offered – like, Sting kept trying to politic with Bischoff to get Luger in WCW because Sting and Luger were and continued as far as I know to be buddies for quite some time. Bischoff offered him $150,000 a year but expected him to turn it down. Because three years ago, when he was in the WCW, his contract was for $750,000. So I think Bischoff kind of figured that either he was going to get a bargain out of this or Luger was going to straight up say no. Now, if Luger's saying yes to $150,000 after being the WWE, I've got no stats on what his salary was at the time because there was nothing that was Published really with WWE at the time. They weren't a publicly traded company yet, the way WCW is part of Turner Broadcasting, and they have to divulge all of their goings on financially, right? So when we're comparing WWE count contracts to WCW contracts, we're going to have to be. Uh, we're going to have to plug in some holes, and some of it's going to be bullshit because some of it's going to come from shoot videos or something like that. But when it comes to WCW contracts, you can pretty much. Nailed down what these guys were making because of the fact that it was part of a publicly traded company. So the good thing is reviewing these things, we get a chance to look into what the financial shit is happening because that was one of the big, one of the big criticisms of Bischoff, right? Is that he brought in all these guys, he paid these guys all this money. They didn't generate the income that they were costing the company. And that's why the company went tits up. And that's one opinion. That's one theory we're going to we're going to explore that a little bit. I don't disagree with it, to be perfectly honest with you, but it is what it is. Um, after Luger goes away, there's a pre-record that comes in, and it's a stinger promo for the match, which was oh, all right, nothing really to write home about. Again, I'm a sting mark, so it really must not be that awesome if a stinger mark's like, yeah, it was all right." After that, there's a pre-recorded Hogan promo in front of Hogan's Pastamania franchise. Now obviously a lot of the, a lot of this fucking promo has to do with plugging and promoting Pastamania which is not a business anymore but for a while there it was a pretty big deal it was essentially it was it was in for the most part in shopping malls and you would have like you know your A&Ws or your Dairy Queens or whatever the fuck the restaurants that are in the food courts well Hogan got a foothold with this Pastamania thing uh, and uh he basically be bought into a company that would already existed, slapped Pastamania on it, you know, throwing back to Hulkamania, threw his face on everything to make a little, you know, a little coin. And then he'd promote the shit out of this pastamania thing. Which is ironic considering that Hogan to this day will tell people that he doesn't really eat pasta at all. Because there's too many there's too much carbs in it that his body doesn't break down fast enough, and he ends up looking Fat and shit, which if you want to hear him live saying stupid shit like that, you can always just go find that Bubba the Love Sponge sex tape that allegedly he didn't release. So we've got the Sting versus Flair match Um, during the match. And this will happen from time to time. I really don't have that much of a problem with it because it it actually does something for the match. But I do know that a lot of Smarks and a lot of fans don't like it when wrestlers no soul, no sell things. Now. That's all well and good, except that I just finished watching one of the New Japan shows, and it was one that was widely, widely regarded as a fantastic pay-per-view, and there was no-selling in every goddamn match. So I think that a lot of this no-selling stuff comes more from a place of we don't like that person. So Hogan no-selling something working up to the punches and then the big leg drop, they got a beef with that. But Flair no-selling something, oh, we like that. Or Sting no-selling something, oh, we're okay with that. Or, uh, I, I guess at one point, Scotty Steiner no-selling something. Sure, we love that. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, it's um, it, it can get a little bit crazy. And, and that's one of the joys of taking part in the online wrestling community. Zero point zero. So, as big of a sting mark as I am... There were far too many overhead press spots here. Um, I know that Flair trusts Sting to not drop him on the flat of his back because back in, I think it was the late 60s, early 70s, Flair was in a legit plane crash that broke his back. So he doesn't trust a lot of people to, to throw him on his back. That's why when he does that top rope spot, he's never really all the way on the top rope, and it's more of a dive forward and a roll. But... As much as he trusts Sting to do these moves to him, there was seven fucking overhead presses. Seven in a match that was three and a half minutes long. Uh, fully half the match was spent showing off that stinking overhead press flare. Uh, it was weird. And then there was a bunch of hip tosses too. It's like they were taking it easy or going to the going to the well one too many times because they were at a live show or something. I don't know, but fuck sakes. Now... The cameraman on the apron is awesome, okay? But the cameraman at ringside is a fucking pro as well because when Arn comes out about halfway through the match, Arn Anderson comes out about halfway through the match to sell this uh, Arn-Flair feud that's been ongoing for a couple of months. And when he comes out, the cameraman moves Arn directly to the left side of his shot so that he can catch the action in the ring with Arn literally like picture in picture style right next to it. So then you get the full view of the judgment of the former best friend versus the the match that's going on there. I mean that's pretty impressive shit for a cameraman because you really only get that with companies that either have cameramen that are that know what's going on and are that are made aware of what's going on from the booking sheets or you've got the usual cameramen that are just all over the fucking place getting in the way, tripping people with cords. It's a clusterfuck. So when you see a cameraman that does that, you got to give him a little tip of the hat because that's pretty impressive. You are a big mark. That is true. Now, there's a top rope suplex from Sting on Flair. Um, Now, again, like I said, there's only one of a couple people that he does this. So that he allows to do this. So that's pretty cool. I mean, it is a top rope suplex and Sting is 260 some odd pounds and Flair's like 250 or something like that. So it's not exactly a small one. Flair gets DQ'd after not realizing the figure four or releasing the figure four while um, Sting was holding on to the ropes. Uh, Arn and Rick fight to the back. Sting is just sort of left there to shrug his shoulders and try to figure out what the fuck is going on. But post-match, Scott Norton comes out and he's demanding a match and Macho comes running out and challenges him. And then security has to clear clear the ringside area and we go to a Sabu promo. Now, Sabu is new to WCW but he's not new to wrestling fans at the moment and just looking at his body, he's already got all of the scars that we remember from his ECW days. But... His promo highlight reel, I don't know if it would fly today. I feel like today, if they put that on television, it would induce a fucking seizure, because it was nothing but flashing images, a cut of him flying off of somewhere, and then a cut, and then a cut of him going through a table, and then a cut, and then a cut of him going through some barbed wire nonsense or whatever. I just, it's a very, it, it's too, it was too quick for even fans of the '90s to see flash and flash and flash and flash and go, there needed to be like an actual set of moves to actually put over Sabu. But considering Sabu's WCW career is all about high spot, high spot, table spot, and then leave, it doesn't really surprise me that the uh, highlight reel ended up looking like this. Now, G Nokolin is in the ring. He announces a Harley Softtail winner, which is something else that happened in conjunction with the very first Nitro. Um, Bischoff plugs, Dirty Dex Later, and Johnny V. Bad's match. Sting and Macho team up and a fall ball fall brawl match announcements on Saturday night. Mr. Wall Street, Mike Rotunda, or IRS, as you may remember him from his WWE days, or Bray Wyatt's daddy. The Fiend does have a daddy. Now, he returns to WCW in a pre-tape promo vignette that was poorly done. Um, there was an over... It wasn't just that the vignette was bad. I mean, the vignette was very 80s. But the overlay left about an inch on the top and on the side of the live camera feed. So it wasn't even directly placed on top of it. Um, I mean, he does throw out the shoot line, which I'm sure had something to do with leaving WWE in, in you know... On Bad Blood, but he says that uh, the IRS will be watching me closely. I thought that was quite clever. I really didn't think that was quite clever at all. What? Now, after that, we get the main event. The main event is Hogan and Big Bubba Rogers. You know Big Bubba Rogers, the Big Boss Man. See how clever we're being in the 90s? Anyways, the uh, I guess I should give the rating for the Flair Sting match two and a half. Let's call it two and a half. Anyways, Hogan versus Big Bubba Rogers. Um, The funny thing was that an alarm was going off in the mall at the beginning of the match. And because it was all live, I think that they just killed it. I don't know if anyone actually answered the alarm or if there was actually something going on. There were some rumors uh, that I read online that somebody had intentionally set a fire in a changing room in order to get the show shut down, which is objectively funny. Um, Hogan does look great though. I mean, to be fair, I don't think the WCW has the wellness policy and the trial, the steroid scandal trial is barely a year ago. Um, he does not look as big as he did in the WWF, but he does look more defined than he did in the WWF. And of course the tanning bed has been getting a lot of work. Um, Bubba basically is in there to sell the fucking holy shit out of Hogan's wrestling ability. I'm just gonna leave that right there like that. Now the ref pulls Hogan's hair to break up 10 punches on the mat. And I thought that was really weird because refs don't usually manhandle wrestlers because refs by and large are 150 pound scrawny guys and the wrestlers including Hogan is good 275. So it's not it's very odd that a ref would lay hands on a wrestler. It's even more odd that a ref would lay hands on the face of the company who is also a face wrestler. And this ref was just way the fuck overselling through the whole thing. Like There was a point when there was a punch that the ref almost bumped himself over the top rope to sell. And the ref was nowhere near it. Like It wasn't as though he got caught up in the punch. He was a good five, six feet away. But he he almost took a bump to go over the top rope. It was very fucking weird. Um, Hogan does beat Big Brother Rogers, but basically there's a uh, Dungeon and Doom run in here. Now, the Dungeon of Doom um, is a Kevin Sullivan brainchild. And if you guys want to go back and have a look at some of Kevin Sullivan's ideas, some of them are good. Some of them are very, very... They worked well in the 80s, but they didn't translate well into a generation of... Uh, I mean, there was it, it was baby boomers that were becoming teenagers in the mid-90s and, and in the late 80s. And most of us were kind of assholes and very, very cynical. I, I have not grown up from that at all. So the Dungeon of Doom was very much an 80s throwback type... Promotion. So you've got, um, well, first of all, you got Kevin Sullivan, who's the taskmaster, who comes out and uh, in in Hogan's colors, like in the or in the red and yellow. Not that that really means anything anymore. Then you had um, the Zodiac, who his Brutus Barber beefcake. Um, oh, I guess Hogan got him a gig where he would dress up in Zeppard uh, and zebra print with uh, zebra print face paint with is whatever was left of his hair on top of his head pulled into like a very much unicorn horn with a white tip on it. And he would like do, he would do like parallels and parallelograms with his arms. Like he'd do like the 90 degree angle thing a couple times where he touched fingertip to the other elbow or, and then he'd go hurt, 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 hurt. To say it was, eighties was being generous because Brutus the Barber Beefcake was very 80s. This was... I don't know what the fuck this was. At one point, Kamala was there, but Kamala was no-showing some events, including this one, and no one really is quite sure why, although it could have to do with the health issues because don't forget that Kamala actually had both legs amputated due to diabetes at one point. So, no idea what was going on there. And of course... Earthquake, who in the WCW is known as the Shark. I wish I was fucking kidding. I really wish I was kidding. And his tights are, like, they're not Earthquake tights. He's got, like, the full leg tights now. But the singlet has the top of the shark mouth, and the briefs have the bottom part of the shark mouth. So when he does sell a punch to the gut, it looks like, the shark teeth are biting the fist of the person that's punching him. They're really quite special and phenomenal. You you really owe it to yourself to go back and have a look at it because it's really quite terrible. <laughs> really, really quite terrible. Oh, my God! Jesus, even Joey Styles is way too loud. All right, so again, this is one of those legit first affections. Uh, Luger was on WWF television on the previous Monday and the Sunday pay-per-view. But he did not like being there anymore. He was pissed. He talked to his buddy Sting, Sting got him a gig, got paid, what he got paid like I mentioned before. But um he was really not fucking happy. His contract had expired after SummerSlam of that year. And so usually what would happen in the WWE is at the time the guys that actually the performers that actually were on contracts the contracts would just roll over with the same terms unless you renegotiated them somehow and there were some guys that renegotiated their contracts hard and there were some guys that didn't renegotiate their contracts at all and and then there were people that like luger who when his contract was up it rolled over but he was gone and he didn't left he didn't let vince know when he left and so luger was never allowed back in the wwe after that whole fucking thing went down. And it was one of those weird things where this was the first time that WCW had quote unquote poached a WWE talent. And don't get me wrong, I like Lex Luger. I think he's got a phenomenal physique. I just don't think that I think he came into wrestling because nothing else had worked out. Like the bodybuilding didn't work out because he wasn't big enough and he was on too many steroids. And the football thing didn't work out because he kept getting injured. And so wrestling was a way to sort of make some money. And this is what he was making his money at. That's not a slam. It's just I don't feel like he got into it because he was passionate about it. or, Or, you know, really loved it or something like that. I think he just got into it because he was into bodybuilding just like Sting. And unlike Sting, though, I don't think he ever really wanted it. like And wanted to be like the man or anything like that. I just think it was a way to make some money, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Anyways, he gets in Hogan's face and uh, the, the, the whole show goes to commercial right when Luger gets in Hogan's face. It, it, it was the weirdest fucking thing ever because like right at that point, I would imagine that fans are like, oh shit, things are about to snap off. Oh. And then we go to commercial now. That would be fine if this was the Golden Girls and this was like being played out and you know, whatever you're going to do. But this is wrestling so Luger gets into Hogan's face and then we cut to commercial so presumably live and we've covered this before on the show and I and I I will fucking keep beating this dead horse as long as I have to live if you were one of those unfortunate 2,000 people that didn't have to pay to watch the show you got to watch Luger and Hogan beaking each other off in the middle of the ring for two and a half minutes that's right that's how long the commercial break was. It was a two-minute normal commercial break, and there was a 30-second War Games pay-per-view promo. That's right. That's what the fuck they let off Nitro with. Anyways, whatever. So Luger cuts a promo, and he puts over the WCW title as the only belt, and he has come to play where the big boys play. Now, this is going to be, if you haven't watched WCW in the past, this will be a reoccurring theme for you, my friends, playing where the big boys play over and over and over at fucking nauseam playing where the big boys play. Just understand that when I say it, uh, I'll, you know what I'll try to do? I'll try to find some sound clips of it. Cause it happens so fucking often that I'm sure I can find a sound clip of every goddamn person that was ever under WCW contract. Say it because it was, the goddamn tagline of the company. It was so much the tagline of the company that it was on the fucking business cards. I I, I wish I was fucking kidding. It was on WCW executive business cards. Jesus fucking Christ. Anyways, Hogan claims that Luger doesn't have to wait wait a week because Luger wants to challenge him for the title next week on Nitro. So next week's live Nitro, Luger wants it to be Luger and Hogan. So Hogan, cutting an awesome Hogan promo, tells him, you don't have to wait until next week. Stick out your grubby little hand and I'll face you next week in Miami. Oh right. Oh, god damn. And this is, this is part of the problem, right? So, part of the problem is that it'll go back to that over and over again. The inmates running the asylum, right? Hogan has full creative control, even more so than he had in WWE. And he had a lot of creative control in WWE. And no, no different than Bret Hart having creative control and not wanting to put over Shawn Michaels when he was leaving, right? Which we'll get there at some point as well. Hogan had final creative control over everything, which meant that Hogan largely was left to write his own promos because Eric Bischoff believed that Hogan was not lying when he told him that he wrote all his fucking WDF programs. Or programs. Jesus Christ, promos. But of course he didn't, right? Vince was such a fucking OCD, and listen, respect, because I got fucking OCD problems too, but Vince was such an OCD monkey, he wasn't going to let fucking anybody write their own programs. At all. When things happened, that's... If things went off script, unless it was fucking amazing, Vince would probably kick the shit out of you, figuratively, off the air. Hogan here, though, he's got full creative control, and he is going to flex that muscle all he can. So expect to hear a lot more shit fucking promos from the promo king, brother over and over and over again. Anyways. So the show's going off the air and mean Gene tells us all that he will see us next Sunday. Oh God. Zero point zero. Jesus Christ. I, I I understand it's their first live show and I'm, I'm empathetic that it's their first live show, but they have put on live pay-per-views in the past. This is not their first kick at the cat. It's just that it's live on TNT as opposed to being live on pay-per-view. It should have been much more polished than this, but I'll give them a break, I guess, because it is the very first Nitro, and I kind of want to see where this fucking train wreck is going to go. This week's show, I'm going to give a two out of five. I mean, I guess I could give it two and a quarter out of five if I really wanted to because of the Sting one. It wasn't a very good episode. It served its purpose, of course, and it also promoted all the other WCW products, Saturday Night's show, the Sunday show, the upcoming pay-per-view, introduced some new talent. Mostly, though, the very first Nitro was a gigantic ad and some high spots. That's not really the best way to kick everything off. And, I mean, I, I understand... To a certain extent, that it makes some sort of sense because, oh yeah, no, we're we're programming against the WWE, but we're programming against the WWE on a week when the WWE is not running. So who cares? I guess is, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't quite understand what the rationale here was. I I suppose it would make a lot more sense if the show had been done. In a cleaner way, or it would have been done a little with a little more mind on the actual matches. The longest match was the Pillman Liger match, it was five minutes and change. The Sting match was three minutes and a bit, and the Hogan match was legit two minutes. So, out of a one hour television show, you had what? 10 to 12 minutes of actual wrestling going on. And this will become a common occurrence as we go. It'll start to get a little bit better after, I think it gets better after like three or four months when the WCW starts getting their shit together and realizing that people are turning into a wrestling show to see some wrestling. And that the promos and vignettes and advertising, the pay-per-views and stuff, those are the things that happen between the matches, not... As a substitution for the match. But it is what it is, man. I mean, this was the very first Nitro. Wasn't the best thing that could possibly happen. But far from the worst. Let's be honest. Let's give them a little bit of credit, will we? Maybe. We'll see. Alright, so that's going to be it for this week. Next week, we are going to come back. And we're going to do episode two. So, whatever it is. September fucking 11th, I think is what it is. And uh, that one is a little bit better. So, the score is a little bit better. And yet the matches are going to be about the same length, so there's going to be some interesting stuff happening with Cebu. There's going to be some interesting stuff happening with the whole Hogan Luger thing. But dude, don't don't rush don't rush ahead in the shows on me. All right, I mean you're you're feel free to welcome and uh, get your WWE network access. I don't get nothing for that. I should though. I should I should get fucking access to make them making getting people to go back and watch old shows. But um, I'm only going to be doing the nitros, obviously. I I will be watching the pay-per-views in their chronological order as I go through the nitros, but I'm not watching Saturday and all that other shit too. However, that being said, we're not going to talk about the pay-per-views on here, so make sure that if you guys want to follow along that you're watching ahead and watching the pay-per-views, all right? All right, in the meantime, check us out on Spreaker, check us out wherever the fuck you get your podcasts from, and, uh, you know, follow us on the Twitter, Facebook, all that other jolly horse shit, and uh, we'll see you animals again next week, all right? Well, that was an abortion of a show. Should the moon take you, check out markoutradio.com and leave a comment. You can also find links there to our Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Stitcher channels. You can even leave a voicemail on our Skype. Just click the links and share them.